Trigger warning. This episode of the Lit Bay podcast includes topics and graphic details surrounding sexual assault, rape, abuse, racial trauma and fetishization, self-harm, disordered eating, and suicide. These topics may be triggering to some, so listener discretion is advised. How do I sound? Am I like too close, too far away? You sound good to me. Okay. Cool, we can start. <laughs> oh no, oh no. All right. I'm s- I'm so nervous. I know. I'm like nervous too. I have like the butterflies, but I did my nervous poop, so I feel okay now. Oh. I feel okay. Uh, <laughs> can you keep this in, please? Yes. <laughs> okay. Let's just start at the I'm nervous and then you talking about your poo. Yes. <laughs> Great. That sounds amazing to me. Gosh. So now I'm comfortable. Now, now I'm not even nervous at all anymore because I heard about your shit. So yay. <laughs> Well, welcome to the Lit Bay Podcast. You are my second guest. I feel very excited and honored to have you here. Oh my gosh, I'm so honored. Thank you. Um, I'm actually going to have you introduce yourself. So just uh, tell people what your name is, your pronouns, and if you had one extra hour in a day, what would you do with it? Oh, fuck. Oh my God, that's such a good question, though. <laughs> um, I, I'm sorry. I was like, whoa, I was thrown off by that a little. Um Hi, um, I'm Sakura Kahero. Um, my pronouns are they, them, she, her. I identify as genderqueer. Um, if I had an extra hour in a day, oh my gosh, what would I do? Oh, sleep. Yes. Honestly, simple as that. Just sleep. I'm the kind of person where I've like trained myself, like, like COVID, like for some reason trained me to like wake up like just so early in the morning. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, I have all the time in the world, but I wish I could just like sleep in like another hour, like actually. So that's probably what I would do. Yeah. Like, 25 hours in a damn day. Sleep. You better sleep for 25 hours. I <laughs> like, listen, boring answer, but the truth. No, you want to know the most boring answer is my answer. <laughs> What's your answer? I would read. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a lot more what though I must say that like reading has really kind of saved my life during like quarantine honestly like I've been reading a lot of like fiction that's so true yeah Yeah. I've been reading a lot of fiction I've been reading a lot of like contemporary romance which you know is my shit um and I'm also finally delving into a lot of books uh they're like historical non-fictions about like the black experience in this country um I've had these books for a very long time and I haven't read them because I was like, I'm never in the headspace to read them. But when are you ever going to be in the right headspace to read about I... the Black experience in this country is really the question. Yeah, as a Black woman, 100%. That is 100% valid. Um, and, you know, like, you make the decision that's best for yourself. So I'm glad you made the decision, um, if it's right for you, obviously. And it seems like it is. Um, but just to give your listeners a little bit of info on you, when this person sends me the contemporary romance stuff it is so funny like she'll text me and like send me like the covers or like something that happened and I'm just like oh my god it's so funny and I like just like really funny like queer like fun and um, not funny but fun like queer ones too yes those are also good it is hysterical when you send me those I know it's it makes my day to send those to you yeah <laughs> I love to, I love it. I'm here for it. I'm here to support you. So thank you. You're welcome. So, so 
Sakura, thank you again for being here. Um, you So Sakura is going to be talking about her experience specifically with AAPI racism and violence and just her experience. Um, so since co- the coronavirus shutdowns began last March, thousands of Asian Americans have faced racist and verbal and physical attacks. The report by Stop AAPI Hate documents 3,795 racially motivated attacks against Asian Americans from March to February, noting that the number is likely a fraction of the attacks that occurred Mm -hmm. because many Mm -hmm. were not reported. So Mm -hmm. I just also want to say that xenophobia and AAPI racism and the violence that is directed at this community is not new. Um, And I know that social media has kind of quote unquote moved on this isn't very like trendy anymore but this is still a very important issue and it needs to be addressed it needs to be highlighted and we need some changes to happen and also we need people to start taking more accountability also agreed yeah when when you it, it was it's interesting um thank you for that by the way thank you for that amazing introduction um it it was interesting when you said the statistics because my reaction when I saw it was oh that's not even close to the number because I'm I would know not only from what I've seen within activism and working within this space for many years the anti-racism space for many years and the diversity equity and inclusion space for many years Mm -hmm. but um from what I know for myself because I've never reported anything so yeah yeah okay well yeah this is gonna be your episode um (laughs) and i want you to share your experience with us and thank you again and before we get started um you know i just want to say that i hope that this process is very like healing for you and after you like let it out some more i hope that this makes you feel at least a little bit lighter i know i can't you know solve the problem by myself but i wish i could yeah um but yeah i'm gonna without further ado i'm gonna let you you get into it. Thanks. Yeah. So to give some background, um, Kerwin and I did an Instagram live the other day where we kind of like talked about how this really came about. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about that before I start. So, you know, Kerwin is one of my best friends. And so when the shootings in Atlanta happened, um, she, you know, I really leaned on her for support and she opened up herself to me for support, um, to support me. And, you know, I've been having like a very difficult time the past three weeks. Um, and through that experience and through, you know, kind of like the anguish I was feeling and what you had said before about the trending hashtag, like I, my reaction immediately for the hashtag stop Asian hate, hashtag st- stop AAPI hate. I was literally like, here we go. Um, it's going to trend and then people aren't going to care about it after a couple of weeks. And that's what I feel like kind of has happened. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everything has kind of slowed down. And Kerwin did an intro to one of her podcast episodes because I obviously listened to it. And <laughs> she did an intro about how... Um, she doesn't have the range to talk about this experience, but she acknowledged it. And so when I heard that, I like reached out to you immediately and was like, well, I have the range to talk about it. So how would you feel about me talking about it? And, you know, when when Kerwin was developing this podcast, it was just beyond like 
literature analysis, right? It was mm-hmm. about so much more than that. And I think you know that listening to it. Um, I think you're, you know, people that listen to this understand that. And another a, a part of it that she had said she wanted to really expand upon was like social justice and race and topics like of that nature. So I was like, I'm at a place right now where I've kept so much of this hidden. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't really verbally spoken about a lot of this in detail um i'm really nervous because i don't know i'm gonna how i'm gonna react to it like Mm -hmm. there's probably gonna be many moments where i'm gonna sob and i just have to kind of deal with that because i'm at the point in my life where i'm sick of keeping secrets um Mm -hmm. i'm sick of hiding uh i'm waterworks already coming like i'm just i'm it's okay. Let it out. Yeah, there's just a lot. So mm-hmm. I'm here to just talk about it. Um, and it's just really scary because, you know, to provide additional context within our own communities, we're told not to talk about these things, too. Mm-hmm. Um, much of that stems from white supremacy, as we know, <laughs> mm-hmm. as many of us know and colonization and the model minority myth that's been perpetuated to ensure Asian Americans were at a close proximity to whiteness and were then going against other uh, racial groups in the in, in, in this white supremacist system. And so I'm sick of being that person. And so I'm here to t- talk about it. And the d- kind of depressing part about this is that um, when Kerr and I decided we were going to do this, I wrote a lot of things down and realized, oh, we don't have time to talk about all of this. So I actually had to leave things out. So I wanted to just be clear that this isn't a complete 100% like comprehensive history of my life. (laughs) And there's a lot (laughs) that I have to leave out. We'd be here for like, two days if I was talking about all that. But um, what I'm really here to focus on is how race has really impacted me my entire life being an Asian person. and to properly disclose, I'm biracial. Um, I'm Japanese and Mexican. So I'm going to talk about a little about how that's affected my life as well. But it's really going to be focused upon me being open and detailed about my experiences. Um, there's going to be a trigger warning at the start of this episode as well. And I wanted to make sure that was there because it's not easy to talk about, but it's also not easy to hear. And I want to ensure that people have the ability to opt out of listening. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, it's mostly going to be about... Asian fetishization and things like that. And I identify, although I'm genderqueer, I do identify as an Asian woman as well. So, um, I mean, to start, uh, I would say that my first real, like, memory, um, Mm -hmm. real, real valid memory of um, now reflecting as an adult would be when I was around 10 or 11 years old. And just to be clear, too, I'm not going to give specific like dates or specific ages only because due to trauma, it's kind of hard to sometimes determine when things happened at certain points in time. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't want to give like incorrect facts, but around 10 or 11, based on when I researched and like talked to my parents and stuff. Um, So when I was younger, I was a swimmer. I was a competitive swimmer. I was very, very good at it at a very, very young age. And my parents really invested in me and I was very much like, I want to go to the Olympics. This is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And so from age like seven until 10 or 11, that was like literally my life. It was swimming every weekend, constantly going to practice all this stuff. And so 
what ended up happening throughout that process was that I got too advanced for group lessons. And Mm -hmm. so my parents were like, we're going to start investing in private lessons so you can get better. And so um, there was a, 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 a community college by where I lived Mm-hmm. Um, where I started taking private lessons and I had a male swimming instructor. And that is my first memory of how, you know, racial fetishization or being an Asian person was incorporated in when it came to sexuality um, because my swimming instructor sexually assaulted me during multiple practices. So kind of the way that it happened and I would say definitely was grooming was in the beginning, um, nothing happened. Um, it was very much just like the grooming process with him specifically was he was trying to build trust with me, right? So mm-hmm. he was like this cool guy. Um, I was also pretty like curvy and quote unquote like overweight as a child, but I was mm-hmm. a very good athlete and a good swimmer. So I also didn't fit like the model of what an athlete looked like even at that even at that young age. And he was very encouraging about it and was like never judgmental. And so that's really how he built trust was Mm -hmm. he was very affirmative, like acted very empathetic. And I'm to be I'm not sure how long in the the abuse started, Mm -hmm. but then it kind of slowly went into him saying things to me like, oh, you're so exotic looking, you're beautiful. You know, I'm 10 or 11 years old and this man is probably in his 40s. Like saying that thing to a child is 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 not okay. It's disgusting and it's wrong. But yeah. as a 10 or 11 year old, I'm just kind of like, oh, like, I don't know what to make of that. This is my first exposure to even like an individual showing like attraction I guess and so Mm -hmm. um and not only is it attraction it's pedophilia but like at 10 or 11 you don't understand what pedophilia is and like I wasn't exposed to like what that concept was so I didn't know what the heck was going on so Mm -hmm. I thought it was like I I remember like not really taking it in as like anything wrong but I remember feeling like there was kind of something off about it and Mm -hmm. so it started with compliments and then, and then it slowly started into going into like him physically touching me when it wasn't exactly necessary. So in swimming, like form is really important, mm-hmm. but there's no need for somebody to touch your butt or touch your, you know, touch my vagina. Like there was no reason for someone to engage in those acts. Right. And, um, I remember he started to then slowly after that, like gauging my reaction, then slowly started to like touch like the small of my back, like near my butt. And it was like when we were just standing in the pool together, like weird things where I was like, what is like, I I didn't understand what was going on at that point I had no range to be like what are you doing this is weird I was just kind of like oh okay he's just being like you know it's like oh he's just being nice like like you know I I had no range there Mm -hmm. and then it moved on to when I would swim he would hold my body as I was swimming to ensure I had proper form but Mm -hmm. he would use like the palms of his hand to cover like my vagina and my butt and would touch both of them 
when that wasn't like a necessary thing to do when you're looking at form like that you there's so many other ways to touch somebody in that you know in that way touch an athlete when you need to talk about form when in swimming and stuff like that and then that started happening and then shortly after that was when there was more like rubbing against like my labia like going near like kind of going near like um uh like under my butt near my labia as well like it then started to elevate to like almost fingering me essentially and like sexually assaulting me with his fingers um and i I wish i could explain like what i was thinking but i don't I obviously don't really recall and Mm -hmm. throughout all of this throughout this assault and throughout his you know his pedophilia um he would comment a lot about my Asian identity and my again how exotic I was like oh you're like half Japanese half Mexican da 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 oh my god so that was really like my first exposure into like how people saw me and sexualized me and It's very strange because um, the abuse didn't go on for very long because shortly after it started and escalated to that level, um, he disappeared. And I had a new instructor and it was a woman. Okay. And I remember asking her like, hey, and, and I loved her. She was a lot better. She never went in the pool. She was always out of the pool, instructing me, instructing my form. So it was a very polar opposite experience of, mm-hmm. of him. And I remember one day I swam to like, I like remember this so clearly. I swam to the edge of the pool. I like got out. I was done with like my exercise and I like looked up at her and I was like, what happened to him? And I remember her kneeling down and I don't remember exactly what she said, but she Mm -hmm. said something along the lines of like, you know, sometimes people like aren't the best fit and sometimes they do very like stupid and awful things. And we just determined he shouldn't be here anymore. And I don't, to this day, I don't know what she meant by that, but as an adult, I'm like, did he abuse somebody else? And they said something. Like, I think about that, like, oh, did someone bring something up? And that's why he was let go. Um, right. And, you know, this was 12, 12, 13 years ago. Like, that's how you dealt with things like that back then. That's even how things are dealt with now. If you find out that um, an adult is abusing a child, mm-hmm. like, it's not always like, I'm going to report you to the police jail. It's like, okay, you're you're being let go, like... You can't be right. in this institution anymore, whatever. And so, yeah, to this day, I don't really know what happened to him. Um, but that was really the start of it all. And um, now as an adult, I really understand why my childhood kind of went the way it did. Because I was thinking about this and I was like, I saw the world at a very ugly place at a very, very young age. Mm-hmm. And um to provide more context after that point um I quit swimming completely um I was like I just don't want to do this anymore and so I felt like my dream was like completely lost yeah and so as an adult now as an adult now um I've had a lot of time in therapy to like 
go through this experience, but kind of the period that I'm going through right now as an adult is um, mourning her. Like, okay, it's almost as if the childhood version of myself is like separate from me. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a social worker. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. But mm-hmm. when I think about it, it's like she like it's like that childhood version of me died like almost when I had those experiences yeah and so it makes me sad to like think about her like that version of myself because I don't think about this part too much but it's kind of like you know what could have been those questions happen like I never ended up having a real childhood after that because I feel like I grew up so fast Mm-hmm. And I had to grow up so quickly because I learned of the ugliness of the world at such a young age. So, so pretty much after the realization of, you know, very recently, my again, as I said before, my childhood started making sense. So I quit swimming, as I said. Um, and then... Um, there's a lot of other context to provide, but I'm just going to jump to this. Um, as a teenager, as like a young teenager, I abused drugs, I abused alcohol, I self-harmed, and I had multiple eating disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, and those specific methods of coping may make a lot of sense because at first I was also heavily bullied as a child, like abusive bullying by my peers mm-hmm. because I was very overweight when I was a kid. Um, it, you know, it's just obviously like very brutal at a young age to be quote unquote overweight. And, um, I originally thought in my past that the drug use, the self-harm, all of that stuff, um, was due to that. But I realized it also had to do with this assault that I essentially like never spoke to anyone about and been like harbor. And it was just like a secret I'd been harboring for years. And so, uh, cocaine was my drug of choice. Mm-hmm. Um, I self-harmed by cutting myself, um, as well as I had anorexia and bulimia on and off for many years. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah, it's just a culmination because not like there's a like there's this intense dichotomy with with the way I was perceived by people because here I have a man who was telling me how beautiful I was, how exotic I was, how perfect I was at the weight I was, even though like other people saw me in a different way. And then like immediately after that, I'm told you're nothing, you're worthless. Um, You know, people would constantly like trip me in the hallways, like slam me into the wall, like kick me, punch me, slap me, like seeing the way that I'm perceived as a quote unquote Asian American and the Mm -hmm. way that those are so hype, like they're they're just so different, I think really messed with me. And um, through the process of, you know, bullying too, it was a lot of racial slurs as well. Um, And it was mostly like, why do you look like this? Like Asian women are supposed to be pretty. You know, why do you look like this? Asian women are small and skinny. Why do you mm-hmm. act like this? Yeah. Asian women are quiet because I was never that way. I was always that like loud, boisterous kid um, that uh, just, you know, I was like a class clown. I said all this. I wasn't into like 
anything that was stereotypically Asian, like math, science, none of that. I was creative. I was a writer. That's what I did. So I was literally like such a polar opposite of the stereotype that people then targeted me because of it. So it goes from like this man telling me all these amazing things about me being me and then the polar opposite happening. So that really, really messed with me my entire life. And I think that makes sense as to why I use these coping mechanisms and stuff. Um, So through my eating disorder and through my cocaine use, um, the reason why cocaine was my drug of choice was because um, it was an, um, it helped suppress my appetite. So um, anorexia was something that was kind of the start of it to where um, cocaine kind of led to anorexia. And then um, I lost like 70 pounds in a process of like a few months. It was very rapid and very quick. Um, I would say maybe Mm -hmm. like three or four months. Um, As as part of that process too, I, I attempted suicide on multiple occasions as well. So I have a history of suicide and um, I decided to tell my parents about my self harm mm-hmm. um, because it was getting to the point where it was just becoming too much. And so I was admitted to an inpatient program at a hospital. I spent about like 10 days there and maybe like 10 days out, something like that. I think it was like two weeks and two weeks out. So I did about a month and I was about 16 at the time. And, um, or actually I might've been 17 because I think I was going into like my junior or senior of, um, high school again, the time and ages, I'm probably not going to get right. And so, um, I went into the program and it was helpful to some degree, but Mm -hmm. I was also keeping a lot of things hidden. You know, I didn't talk about my drug use. I didn't really talk about my alcohol use. I didn't Mm -hmm. talk a ton about my, um, my, um, my cutting, I would cut the outside of my arms so I can hide them with like sleeves and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, and I wasn't, I didn't really discuss that with anyone. So as much as it helped to some capacity, it also wasn't helpful at all. Um, and so after that program, I came back to school, I was a lot thinner mm-hmm. and people started treating me very differently. Um, people were a lot nicer to me and that also fucked with me because yeah. it's like just a constant runaround of just like, of like, do you like, do, do you like know who I am? Do you like me or not? Like, why are you doing this? I don't understand all that stuff. And um, so the bullying had already stopped by then. But Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I started getting attention because now I was thinner, significantly thinner. Um, People were a lot nicer to me that also messed with me. And um, then it kind this kind of leads into like what happened to be next so I had two friends mm-hmm. in um high school around my um I would I think it happened my senior year um that both sexually assaulted me um and both of them uh did also comment about my Asian identity and I'll explain that in a sec so in one of the situations, uh, they're both male. Um, in both those situations, it, ha- um, it, it happened a little bit differently. So one guy um, really, like, I was kind of like, uh, um, I had dated, like, a friend of his, like, very, very briefly. And he had always told me that he was into me and that, like, he loved Asians and all this stuff. And at that time, I thought it was a compliment. I didn't really 
you know, fetishization, like we don't really like understand it at that age. And so I was just like, oh, he like really likes me. And like, I never really experienced what it was like to be liked by someone. And I didn't know, like, at that time, I had kissed like one boy. Um, and he actually treated me really well. He was really nice, um, broke his heart, unfortunately. Um, but uh, this other dude um, came by shortly after him. And yeah, he he was very attentive, talked me up, like constantly talked about my Asian identity, all this stuff. And like nothing ever really happened. We like kissed, but I knew he wanted to have sex, but I was like not in a place to do that under any capacity. I'd never had sex before. Um, I had no interest in doing it. And I was just really scared of that idea. Um, mm -hmm. We were together in a car one day in a parking lot and we were waiting for somebody and we were just sitting there and um, he asked if I wanted to be in a relationship. Um, and I had said, no, I was, I said, I don't know. Like I didn't want to, and I didn't really know how to say no. Um, and he did not like that answer. So he um, unzipped his pants and um, said, like basically asked me to give him a blowjob. And I said, absolutely not. And what he did instead was grab my arm really hard and force me to touch his penis with my hand. And all I really remember after that was I, I was touching it, except my, the entire other half of my body was looking out the window and just looking away from him. So he had grabbed my hand. He had had forcefully put my hand on there and was keeping it on there. And like, basically like, rubbing himself with my hand yeah. and I was just looking out the window being like I I just want this to be over and that lasted just like a couple of minutes and then he let my hand go um so that was pretty traumatizing obviously and it was very shortly after that that I kind of like disbanded from that friend group and decided like I'm not speaking to anyone again um and then another situation had happened as well with another male friend of mine um there was this guy that I had been talking to for like several years at school. We were friends and he was always really nice to me. Um, he was kind of like a nerd. So I didn't really like, I didn't find him very threatening. Mm -hmm. So what happened was very shocking to me. Um, he, it, it kind of started with him instant messaging me. Cause this was when like AIM was still kind of a thing. And it was uh -huh. when, I know it's, it's so weird to talk about AIM. <laughs> um, I know. It's so oh weird. Gosh. Yeah. He would like instant message me and he would tell me he thought I was beautiful that like, again, loved Asian women, especially Japanese women. Um, and just a lot of comp complimentary, complimentary things. Um, and we had a couple of mutual friends as well. And so there was one time when we went to like, uh, we went to like a gathering at a friend's house um, and we um, we were going to like watch a movie mm -hmm. and um, we decided to like turn all the lights off. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, we're going to watch a movie, like turn all the lights off. It's like we're in the theater sort of thing. And he decided to sit next to me on the couch mm -hmm. and he put a blanket over both of us. And I thought we were just going to sit and watch the movie. Um, I never consented, never did anything. Um we never ever spoke about doing anything sexually together and um before I so he started holding my hand and mm -hmm. I was kind of like okay so I thought it was like innocent like he's holding my hand right um and then 
after that happened, um, he moved over to my vagina. He unbuttoned my pants and he started rubbing my clit. And I was very much in shock. Um, I didn't feel like I could say anything because I was in a room with other people. No one knew what was going on. And so I literally just like sat there and froze and watched the movie. And I didn't react in like any way. I, I was hoping the more stoic I was, the, the more he would see I'm not enjoying this experience. And right. he would stop because, you know, as a, as a teenager, like, what range do we have to be like, get the fuck off of me? Like, even as adults, we don't really have that range sometimes. And so it's like, what range did I have, you know, to be like, get away from me and like cause a scene because he, you know, in my head, he would have been like, what the fuck are you talking about? I, like, I wouldn't do that. Da, 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 da. And so I was hoping it'd be over, but then he started like trying to finger me. And that is when I started to try to see if I could like adjust myself like in the seat Mm -hmm. Um, to potentially then have him stop. So I remember doing that once, but then he just went and started again. Um, and thankfully the end of the movie was near, so that didn't last very long. And once the movie was done, he like stopped. And then we pretty much didn't speak after that. Um, we maybe spoke like once or twice, but I pretty much cut all ties and it was like, we never really spoke after that. So, yeah. So, you know, before the age of 18 years old, the, the, the majority of the sexual experience I had was not consensual and it was somehow like coerced or forced or done in a way that I, I didn't feel I could consent under any capacity. So mm -hmm. um, that obviously really messes with you. And, and, and when there's an intersection of the, that kind of abuse with your race, it's like in my head, I was pretty much just like, okay, like, um, there's nothing I can do. This is going to be what my sexual experience is for the rest of my life, because this is what happens to Asian women. It's out of my control, but this is like how we're treated. So there's like nothing I can do about it, essentially. Um, yeah. So in college, um, I did have like a couple of boyfriends. I did have a long-term boyfriend that was really great. Um, I, I, I still speak about him really highly to this day. Um, yes, you do. Yes, I do. I do speak very highly of this person. I'm not going to say their, their name just, just for the sake of anonymity, but mm -hmm. um, that's when I really realized what it, what it was like to be loved by somebody. And mm -hmm. I'm really, really happy I had that experience. I think I'm really lucky. Race mm -hmm. had nothing to do <laughs> with our relationship in the sense of it was not used as any sort of like sexual thing or fetishized thing. Like he just loved me for me. Yeah. And he was, he took an interest in my, in my life and in my culture because it was my culture, not because he you know sexualized asian women and so that was i had a really positive experience and I'm, and I'm really really happy and lucky that i had that experience with them um we did a little bit more than a year and um to disclose um i identify as gender queer because i also identify as queer um and so around that time um i realized that you know i i wasn't sure if i was gay or you know i didn't know if i identified as a lesbian but i knew that 
I wasn't sure if I wanted to have experiences with cis men anymore. And that's mm-hmm. essentially what like broke us up. Um, and shortly after that, um, another friend of mine uh, raped me uh, shortly after that. So shortly after um, my like, am I bi? Am I a lesbian? Like kind of experience. Um, there was a person in um, at my college that I had become kind of friends with and um like very attractive guy um I had like a crush on him but um we had never communicated like in a sexual way it was nothing like that I just thought we were like friends Mm -hmm. and um um you know he he really like courted me in the sense of um he would take me out to dinner he would pay he would like pick me up in his car like very like materialistic things like that and you know we had like kissed and like made out a couple of times like after like many months of knowing each other and i thought it was like very innocent um you know i just gotten out of a relationship i wasn't really looking to engage in a sexual relationship with someone there was several occasions when he wanted to engage in something sexually where I said no mm-hmm. and he would he would guilt trip me a lot like he would be like okay like things like that or like roll his eyes at me if I didn't want to and in that case too he would talk a lot about like um uh like oh, how do I say this like He wasn't directly, like, I like Asian women, but he would talk about, like, um, how good, like, Asian and white people look together and how, like, good we would look together and things like that. So there's still that element of, like, race and um, in there to some capacity. And then um, after many moments of rejecting um, this person... There was an incident when we were in my room at my apartment together and no one else was home. And he tried again. And I said, no. And I, and at first I was like, I'm not sure. And I said, I don't think I like want to. Um, And then I said, no. And the door of the room was closed, but I had like a lock on my door and it wasn't locked. And he went and locked the door and he said, you're not leaving this room until you have sex with me. Oh no. So. (sighs) Take your time. Take your time. I I remember the very intense amount of fear that I felt in that moment. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times when people think of like sexual assault and rape, they think of very like brutal forceful, like physically forceful situations, mm-hmm. right? And um like it's what we see like on on TV in the movies, but a lot of what I've experienced is coercion and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't exactly like I'm slamming you on the ground and going to like beat the crap out of you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a lot of like grooming. It's a lot of building you up to a point where you trust somebody. And then it's the, 
the forceful nature verbally and like you are not getting out of this situation until you do xyz or i'm not giving you a way to get out of this situation and so that was probably the most um uh forceful experience i had and i remember um sitting there and being like okay well i have to um and this is really really um it kind of makes me feel icky when i say mm-hmm. this but i'm very happy that it only lasted about 2 to 3 minutes it was very short um and he 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 came relatively quickly mm-hmm. and so it was a very very short-lived experience and so i feel very lucky to have gotten out of it so quickly because I can't even envision what it would have been like yeah. if it would have been long um if it if if I had to like if I was requested to do like multiple things like or like forced to do multiple things I I I don't like to think about it that much but I was thinking about that today of that it happened relatively fast and so um after it was over um I like immediately dressed and um, I sat on my bed and I just like wanted him to leave so bad. And he tried to like get emotional with me and it was like very, very weird and strange. And so um, I I don't really remember what happened after that and how I got him to leave, but I somehow got him to Mm -hmm. leave. And then Weeks later after that, I just stopped communicating with him. And I had told people that we had consensual sex, um, which was not the case. And um, so I had told people we had consensual sex. And um, weeks after, he was, like, constantly messaging me, trying to guilt me into seeing him, all this stuff. And I just was like... No, like, like, I kind of would just make up excuses. And I was really afraid because he knew where I lived and all this stuff. But I was just, um, I, I, I just cut ties and I essentially just like ghosted him. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, 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 I had to do that over the course of several weeks. And like, he was harassing me. It was pretty nonstop. Um, and then finally got him, um, to stop talking to me so that was good but it just took a lot of like effort and work on that end so again now another experience where there's no consent I don't know understand you know in in that case I tried to learn as much as I could from my past and be like you know as women we're really told to be like, well, you have to say no, like very explicitly, or it doesn't matter. And like, obviously, that's not true. Right. Um, and and um, so I was explicit, but it still happened. And so in my mind, I was like, this is just what sex is with people. Like, it's not consensual. Um, that was really all I was told about sex. And so, um, you know, when I when during college, and even like, post college, 
I was never the kind of person that engaged in sexual activity early with people. Um, It just like wasn't something I did because I was like, well, it's all just like non-consensual and it's all awful. And, and so around that time, since I had like come out as bi or potentially like lesbian, then I eventually did come out as a lesbian. I was like, okay, I feel like a renewed sense of self because I'd always been attracted to like, like, many gender identities Mm -hmm. um over the course of college i dated several trans people and um uh and like i always knew um my attraction was beyond cis men i just didn't know how Mm -hmm. shortly after that was when um i exclusively started dating women um and i also dated um uh, trans folks both trans women uh trans men and like all trans identities um and i was you know just trying to figure myself out um i knew that i had a deep attraction to women at that time and so it was me like really like you know i started dating women i was like oh my god this just feels like so right and um i had had sexual experiences with women previously and it felt right but they were all straight women okay. um and so I never it, it so I like never really knew kind of what was going on. But I was starting to then have experiences with uh, bisexual, lesbian women, and it felt really right. And so you know, it was kind of like my coming out like moment. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, the toxic relationships um, didn't end, um, even with my experiences with women. Um I have, other than that guy that I talked about in college, I've never really had a non-toxic relationship with somebody. Um, there's always been some form of abuse, whether it's sexual, physical, verbal, or like manipula- manipulation, always some form of abuse in every relationship I was in. And one of the relationships I was in, um, it, 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 um, it ended up being physically abusive. And that's what I'm going to talk about now. Um her and I dated for about a year um, post-college. Um, she had a, she only dated people of color. Mm-hmm. Um, she's, she's white and she exclusively dated people of color. And um, she was very intrigued by my um, Asian um, Latinx identity. She constantly talked about it. It was something that she also incorporated during sex, especially the Japanese stuff. Um, just like a lot of really gross fetishization, um, like dirty talk, like during sex and stuff like that. And so that was really at the core of our like sexual relationship mm-hmm. was the fact that I was an Asian woman. And there was a lot of talk about that. Um, she was verbally and physically abusive to me. Um, and with a part of the verbal abuse, not only was it a lot of screaming, a lot of demeaning language, um, jealousy, um, um, controlling. Um, she, um, I remember at one point she told me I couldn't lose any weight because she didn't want me to lose my, lose my Mexican curves. Um, she didn't want me to be too thin like an Asian person. Um, and that's like why she selected me essentially because I was kind of like best of both worlds to her. And so that was told to me on many occasions where, you know, eat more, don't lose weight, all that stuff. And I already had intense body image issues because of my eating disorders in the past. So that was a very weird, rough time. And um it was physically abusive in the sense that at first she would just like grab me or like grab me really hard and like shake me. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and um and stuff like that or like she would engage in like she would try to engage in really like rough sex with me when I didn't want it um and so that was like incorporated and then um there was a situation where in um in the bathroom of a bar um we were both drunk and she had said something that like really pissed me off and she kind of like jokingly hit me in the face and I like kind of stood it was like really I just like stood up to her and was just like I don't like that you did that and then um she um I went to the bathroom and I was like crying and I went into the bathroom to kind of like cool off and she followed me into the bathroom and like the music was out there playing really loud the bar was like about to close and she choked me in the bathroom and uh she grabbed my neck and choked me and started lifting me up and um that was the first that was the first real like very very violent assault that had happened in the relationship and I remember I was wearing like very high heels that day Mm -hmm. and so um before like I couldn't breathe but before it got too like too violent to the point where I was like gonna pass out I was able to like kick her in the stomach Mm -hmm. and she like fell backwards and I just like fell to the ground and I was just like sobbing uncontrollably and she started saying things like you made me do this like we can't be together anymore because you made me do this and you know having been in only abusive situations with people like not all but like predominantly I was like, don't leave me, da 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 da. Like, I like it's it's almost like shameful for me to think about that mm-hmm. now because I was like begging her to like not break up with me even after that happened. And we dated um for I'm I'm I don't remember, it was quite a few months after, but thankfully the relationship ended due to like XYZ circumstance. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it was kind of like a breakup of convenience almost. And I, and I was just happy that I had an out because I was not in a place mentally at all to leave. And during that time, I remember telling my sister about it. um, And I remember, you know, telling her and sitting with her in the living room and telling her what happened. And she was so shocked. And she said, you know, I can't like tell you what to do. But if I was in that situation, I I would leave. I wouldn't put like, please leave. Like she was just like, please just leave. And yeah, I think about that moment a lot because I feel like she's the reason why I left. And so... I thank her a lot for being the person that really was like, no one can should treat you that way. I love you so much. Like, please don't allow someone to do that to you because I couldn't stand up for myself. And so her and I are just so close because we've just been through a lot together in general. But I do think about that moment a lot. Um, we're sitting together. Like, I remember it so clearly. And, you know, she was really, she's the only one I've really told, like, I really told, and that just advocated for me, like, the best she could, and just begged me uh, to leave. And so, thankfully, I did. Um, 
but after that happened, I was really, really messed up. And so I took a break from dating for about like a year. Um, I did not engage in any sexual relationship with anyone. I just was like, I can't do it. Um, I need my time. And then after that, um, thankfully, I have never been in a physically like abusive relationship since. But then the abuse turned to something else, which was more like mental Um, which was more, excuse me, like verbal and like emotionally abusive. So um, I dated someone for about a year after that relationship um, ended that um, also pretty much exclusively dated people of color. And she was very upfront about it. And um, she was very like, you know, soft spoken. You know, we, you know, we we got into fights where we yelled at each other and stuff like that because we're young and unhealthy and like don't under, you know, I didn't understand how to communicate properly. Um, and I take full responsibility for my part and like our fights and all that stuff. But she only historically dated people of color and yet completely refused to acknowledge racism mm-hmm. and it and just completely refused to acknowledge like my experiences. Um, she like didn't want to talk about it. Um, she had no interest in being emotionally supportive to me in that way. And so that is very toxic, right? Like dating a white person and understanding like, well, I only date people of color, but I refuse to acknowledge anything about you. And so that's like in the sense of like anything negative. Um, I'm only here for the positives of it, which is like, whatever the fuck white people say about us and so that's like a form of fetishization right like she was attracted to me because i'm a person of color mm-hmm. and yet would never like never advocated or stood up for me so that was a pretty toxic relationship that lasted about a year um i had another relationship after that that was really similar um where you know it's 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 my experiences with people after dating after that point had been They were just not willing to be anti-racist. They were not willing to confront their families or support me in any way or learn. Mm -hmm. It was complete, like, I acknowledge the things about you. And when I talk about you, I say you're Japanese and Mexican and like bragging, like, I'm a good white person because I'm dating a person of color, but then totally refusing to then do the actual work um, to then be better. So that, that was kind of, you know, that's historically in my past been... Uh, the relationships I've been in. So outside of relationship stuff, um, I lived in Portland, Oregon for two and a half years. And um, when I moved to Portland, uh, about a month in, I knew that I did not, I made a huge mistake in the sense of like, I felt like I made a mistake because I was like, oh my God, this is not what Portland says they are. Like it, like you and I have talked about it, Portland's very good at marketing themselves. Yeah. Um, and I, they don't actually accept everybody. It is a lie. Um, I'm here like, I, I don't give a shit, who knows, come at me. Um, it's a lie. Um, you don't accept everybody. You are incredibly racist and it's covert racism, which is something I like learned about there. Like the racist experience I had were like, like were 
covert in the sense of like fetishization and sexualization Mm -hmm. but then I had other experiences where I was like called racial slurs and like yelled at on the street and that was very overt but in Portland it was like oh my god we're all amazing liberal white people except da 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 like we're not going to acknowledge these things about you and da 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 um we think we should be in charge of like all the protests and not give people of color like the time of day to like speak up for themselves. We're going to speak up on behalf of you. Like it's a lot of just covert microaggressive racism. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when I, I think I kind of realized like what was going on. Um, I had situations, uh, you know, within many um, within my workplace, within other communities where um people had essentially told me to just shut up and be quiet about um, being open about anti-racism and equity um, because the cause that I really clung to was um, ensuring that black and indigenous folks um, had equity within, you know, this landscape and um, as much as they could, I guess. And um, that, you know, I was really, really focused on, you know, because the Black Lives Matter movement was in full swing. And so my activism work was predominantly uh, for the rights of Black people, Black trans women as well. Um, And so within that space, I was told a lot by people to like, basically like simmer down and shut up. And, um, you know, it was interesting, because in my experience, like, as an Asian person, there was the stereotype there of like the being quiet and being like calm and just listening. So I was constantly told like, just like sit, listen, you know, like that's what you're supposed to do, blah, 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 blah. That's just the way you deal with this, these things yet. Like, so when I would speak up, I would get that reaction yet. My white counterparts would be celebrated for doing exactly what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I noticed that right away. And um I was being consistently told that my opinion doesn't matter, that um, I was like getting in trouble by people and being talked to like, well, other people are talking about you and they're saying that they're like offended by what you're saying. And it was me being like, Donald Trump sucks. It was me being like, Black Lives Matter. It was me being like, um, we need to prioritize Black and Indigenous folks, like reparations, all that Mm -hmm. stuff. And it was like, I was being told like, everyone's really uncomfortable around you like that was the narrative Mm -hmm. and it was just constant like like your voice is like here but it doesn't matter you're essentially very worthless and we don't care about what you say and as long as you shut up and be quiet you'll be fine and um it got to be too much um and one night I got very blackout drunk and attempted to end my life And, um, that experience is a little strange to talk about because I blacked out for a majority of it. And so there's a lot I still don't remember. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember just crying uncontrollably, being blackout drunk. I thought... Like I reached for like a bot. So essentially what I tried to do was to overdose on, um, it was either acetaminophen or ibuprofen. I don't remember which one. Um, and I attempted to overdose on that. And so the plan in my head that I had, which was like what I thought the easiest one was, um, I'm going to take a bottle of pills. 
I'm gonna leave my home. I'm gonna like just walk to like a street somewhere because I was in a relationship at the time. And I didn't want her to find my body in the house. So um, I left the house and um, I was gonna walk somewhere. And then when it hit, I would just pass out and essentially like die on the street and someone would find my body. Um, but, and so I do remember thinking of the plan. I remember, sorry, this part just gets to me. I remember texting my brother and my sister and being like, I'm sorry, I can't do this anymore. I love you. And I remember crying really, really hard when I was texting them. Yeah. Because I knew I would never see them again. And I felt really awful, but I felt like I had to do this. And after that, it's a com- almost a complete blur, to be honest. Um, I sort of remember going to the bathroom and getting um, the pills. I remember vomit. I remember, like, it's, it's kind of like snapshots of things yeah. that I remember. I remember... Um, at least I think I reached for the right pills. I'm not even like sure at this point. Like I remember also immediately, I I remember vomiting like uncontrollably on the street. And I, and I remember seeing like the, like the pills come out of me. Like I remember the visualization of that, like in the grass. Um, And I remember seeing that and like putting them in my hands and like throwing them in a garbage can because I remember being like oh I don't want dogs to eat this and die like I remember that like part of it and it's like so strange because like I was like in this like weird blackout almost like state of like you know attempting to end my life but then I was worried about the dogs like eating you know thrown up vomited pills like on the street and I remember like throwing them in a garbage and then I remember being waking up like partially like I think I passed out somewhere to be honest I don't really know um but I remember waking up in like a neighborhood like it must have been like a mile away like I I really don't know I don't know how far I was able to walk and just waking up on the street and being like what the fuck just happened and then I blackout moment after that and I woke um and the next memory I have was waking up to my sister calling me. And I was like I like had like the worst headache and I was in my bed like at my house like in the guest bedroom. Mm-hmm. Um and I remember like waking up and just being like what the fuck and like I had the worst headache and she was calling me repeatedly. And um I like ignored her calls and I texted her really fast to be like hey like I'm okay like I saw the message I sent her and I was like oh my god and I was like I felt like mortified I was embarrassed um and I remember texting her being like I'm okay I'm at home like don't worry Mm -hmm. 
and she was panicking and we were texting back and forth. I was like, I can't talk right now. I'm exhausted. And, I, and, and that was true, but I just didn't want to face her. I did not want to face her verbally at all. I was not in the state of mind to do it. I was still trying to reconcile like what happened because I like didn't know because back then I didn't have these little snapshots. These little snapshots started happening like very like more so with maybe within the last year that I was kind of like realizing all these mm -hmm. things and um and so I just remember frantically talk texting back and forth I was obviously still drunk when we were texting so I don't remember much of the conversation um then um I get a knock on my door and it's the police um the police came to my house because my sister called them because she saw the message mm -hmm. and essentially they came as like a welfare check. And so I was like, Oh no. And I remember being so pissed at her because I was like, you called the fucking police. Like, I can't believe you did that. And that was at the time, obviously. And so I had to greet the police and they said, hi, are you, you know, said my name. And I was like, yes, that's me. And they're like, we received a stress call from your sister um that you attempted to end your life tonight and I was like yes I did it didn't and I was just like I just wanted them to get the fuck out of my face and so I was like it didn't work said something along those lines and they're like is there anyone else with you in the house and I said yes my like partner is here and um and they were like we need you to wake her up because you are like now required to go to a hospital to get like essentially like a check and I don't know if that was like legitimately true. Like, I don't know if they could force me to do that. I'm not sure, but I was so exhausted and still in top. Like I still felt like intoxicated mm -hmm. that I was just like, fine, whatever. So uh, the person I was with at the time slept through all of this. Um, and so I woke her up. She had to talk to the police and um, was like, Hey, they were like, Hey, are you blah, blah, blah. Um, are you able to drive her to a hospital, um, to an emergency room to get basically like a social welfare like check? Um, they might have to run tests, do these things, but like you have. Okay. Um, I will. Um, I'll go. So she drove me. I had to check in. Um, the doctor came in, asked me what happened. I, I was like, here's what happened. I was like, I think I took ibuprofen. I think I took acetaminophen. Like, I'm not sure. And they're like, okay, we have to run tests to make sure because if you are going through that process right now, we're going to have to pump your stomach. We're going to have to do all these things. So they're like, we have to run tests now. Um, and uh, thankfully, there was none of, they only tested for one, I think, to be honest, I don't remember. But they were like, they're like, they were like, it's not in your system. So you're okay. Mm -hmm. So when I think about that memory of me vomiting, I think that's like kind of what happened. I think maybe I immediately vomited. Like, I, I don't know. Um, I could have taken something else. I have no idea what happened. And so, um, but all I know is that they didn't have to pump my stomach and do all that. And then they were like, can you tell me like why you did this? And I was essentially like, the racism here is something that I can I can't deal with anymore I can't deal with what's happening to me I can't deal with what's happening to everyone around me I'm like so sick of it and I just remember him being like so nice and he just I could tell he felt so awful and like 
he wasn't even the social worker he was the doctor and he was just trying to comfort me and he was just trying to validate me and I remember feeling like wow this is like the first true validation I felt from a white person and so after you know Mm -hmm. outside of my therapist and because I was going to therapy at the time so after that happened um he said, okay, we're going to have to do like a social worker is going to come in that we're going to ask you some questions and they're going to basically determine whether you have to go to like a psychiatric place or something, or you can be let home. I interviewed with her. She determined I could be let home. So I went home and I don't know how to like describe this, but that moment like truly Mm -hmm. changed me like as a person. Um, I just just remember being incredibly disappointed in myself because, you know, I previously attempted suicide in my past and I was just like, I thought I was done with this. But, you know, you just get up, you just get to a specific point where you can no longer handle something and I reached my breaking point. And so now, you know, I don't feel that level of disappointment, but I remember being like, I'm so disappointed in myself. And... Mm-hmm. Shortly after that, I had to take leave off of work for about two months because I was like, I can't be at work. I can't be triggered. Um, And shortly after I went on unpaid leave for two months, I sprained my ankle really, really badly when I went on a run with my dog where I had to basically like rehabilitate my own ankle. And so I thought this two months was going to be my time to like do things and like be healthy and be in nature and explore. And that's not what happened. So all I could do was think. And the two months I had of thinking really put things into perspective of where I was kind of like, I think this was like kind of meant to happen because like, it, it's weird. Like I don't believe in God. Like I, I, I'm not religious. I'm not super spiritual, like all this stuff, but I felt like there was like, like, I felt like this moment of like really weird clarity where I was like, I almost felt like this was meant to happen to like teach me something because I've had like nine freaking lives, like based on like everything that's happened in my past, I have almost died on multiple occasions and well, at least almost died in the sense of like attempted to end my life. And I never did. And I was just like, why is this the case like this means something I guess and so I I was going it was really heavy and I was kind of going through a lot and then about a year after that actually maybe like a little less than a year after that um maybe a year after um that's when COVID hit um and when COVID hit um Mm -hmm. like after my suicide attempt things were actually going really well and things started to improve. I knew I didn't want to stay in Portland, but things started to improve and then COVID happened. And then things got worse. Um, When COVID hit, um, you know, uh, the increase of Asian American violence was more prevalent in the media. Um, I, yeah. You know, you and I have talked about this part specifically, but, you know, when I would walk in the street, white women especially would grab their children in a very dramatic manner and avoid walking next to me on the sidewalk. So there was like things like that that started to happen. Um, I was spit on by multiple white men on several occasions. Um, 
And so it was a lot of that. Like I could, you know, we were stuck, we were in quarantine and I could not even walk outside without someone being scared of me because of the narrative that was spread about it being a Chinese virus, or I couldn't walk without being like assaulted by like a white dude essentially. So there's a lot of over and covert um, behaviors in that way. And so I had to basically find like a very specific route to walk to where I knew at a very specific time to like avoid people because I just wanted to get the fuck out of my house. I did not want to be stuck in my house and um, all that stuff. And, and actually this happened like um, a, a situation I'm going to talk about. I actually talked about it on Instagram um, where a couple, maybe like two months in to COVID, um, I was on a walk and, um, you know, in my neighborhood and, um, it was around eight, you know, eight o'clock and like in Portland, like even when it's dark, like, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you can just like walk anywhere. Like, no, like it's, it's not like unsafe to do that. And that was like kind of my impression and had been my experience really this whole time before COVID. And what had happened was um, mm-hmm. I was walking on the street and w- when I walk, you know, as a woman and as an Asian woman um, and I- I'm always hyper aware of where I am going at all times, um, always hyper aware and um, just for my own safety. And so I'm, I'm always looking and observing my surroundings. That's something I learned to do um, at a very young age. And I was walking and I was like, just in a neighborhood and port and I don't know how to describe this in Kerwin if I, I don't know if you can describe this but Portland has these like things on the sidewalk so there's a lot of like single family homes in Portland and on like a sidewalk people will have these like very mm-hmm. amazing like gardens to where like it like it's these like tall bushes that like go up really high and almost cover the house and like like in front of the house, like on the sidewalk, it's almost like a dome of like flowers and like shrubbery. And like when you and you walk through them, like you're in like a jungle or something. And it's like these really, really cool, like fully like this really cool foliage that's like on neighborhood sidewalks. I don't know what they're called, but there's essentially like extravagant gardens. And like that's something I've never experienced anywhere but Portland. So I have no idea what to call it. And so yeah, like so, so, so like I'm. Yeah, not, I don't I, either. I don't, again, I don't, I don't have the range to describe that. what that looks like. Um, so that's why I'm like, just be, like I'm being kind of confusing. <laughs> so I apologize. So, um, you know, they have a lot of that. So I loved going through these like little neighborhoods that had that. And one night, um, I was looking, like I was walking, and I noticed a white van, like a very stereotypical white van, coming out out of the corner of my eye, and. Um, I kind of saw this dude like trailing me in the car. And so I had headphones on. And so I immediately turned my music off so I could hear and I acted like I didn't see this person, but I was just like observing and they were still in their car. And so I had crossed like one street, the dude was still like following me, but it was like driving and like trailing me. And then as I was entering another street, one of those big like foliage things in front of the house was there. And there was like these very, very big like bushes, I guess they're called, that were also there. And like a little area that you could almost like crawl into kind of thing. And like, I guess I I think it might've been attached to the house as like a crawl space. Like, I don't, I'm not really sure. And 
the car was on my um on my left hand side walking started you know coming closer to me and then the dude started yelling things out of the car i was in a sense of panic but i do remember him saying um asian racial slurs as well as like suck my dick marry me it was very targeted toward me as like an asian woman like be my wife like stuff like that and so i remember looking at him like looking into his eyes to be like i see you because usually in my past that is what stopped people Mm -hmm. from continuing to approach me was that I wouldn't ignore them I would just like look at them and so as that happened and as we were walking Mm -hmm. I entered this like little foliage and it was very dense so I was able to kind of stop and like stand and wait as the car pulled forward more and like I could kind of see him through like the branches and the the tree and stuff and he was in a car so he couldn't see me and it was dark and I was wearing like dark clothing. And then, um, as he pulled, um, as he like pulled forward, he stopped the car, the engine turned off and I actually blacked out. And the next thing I remember, I don't remember crawling into anywhere. I don't remember jumping into anywhere. I have no idea how I got into this space, but the next thing I remember, I was literally like, like um like scrunched up in kind of like a ball hiding like in this bush little like crawl space area and I remember like taking a deep breath in and taking Mm -hmm. like very tiny micro breaths out so I wouldn't be breathing too heavily so he couldn't hear me and um I remember seeing him um kind of being like, where did she go? Like, da 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 da, and him like kind of like circling around, and I and I I couldn't see his face clearly. I couldn't see his body clearly, which was good because I was like, okay, he can't see me. And then I remember just like holding my breath and sitting there, and um, it was like an intense amount of adrenaline. And then he walked away. I heard um, him get into the car. I heard like I heard the door open. I heard the door close. I heard the engine turn, and I heard the car go. And I waited there for like a few more minutes just in case and then got my body out of this space and like just saw like my body covered and like leaves and like whatever the else like branches and shit and like whatever the fuck was in there and um, I walked home <laughs> and I walked home and I came into, you know, my house. Um, I immediately went to the bathroom. And I remember looking at myself in the mirror and, like, seeing myself. Um, And I was looking, like, at my body. I, like, took the sweater that I had off. And I actually had, like, scratch marks, like, on my neck. And I had scratch marks, like, on my face. I had them on my arms. And it was at that point where, like, I was bleeding, too. But it it wasn't like intense dripping blood. Um, mm-hmm. But I remember looking at my arms and seeing that like the blood had like coagulated like on my body and it was like dried. And I just like remember looking at myself being like, oh my God, I'm bleeding. And I'm bleeding in like several places. And I had cuts on like my legs too. I remember I just took all my clothes off and was kind of standing in my underwear. And I like looked at myself in the mirror and literally thought like, how did I get so lucky? Because I don't know what this person would have done I don't know what the person was planning on doing and 
you know, this just happened like a year ago. So it's still something that's top of mind for me and probably like the number one thing that's been triggering to me since the shootings in Atlanta, because I was like, I could have easily been mm-hmm. kidnapped, raped, murdered, I don't know. And so that part is something that you know, I've really had to train myself to not think about because I don't know how I got so lucky. And then it brought me back to my other experience where I tried to end my life of like, there's a reason why, like, it was almost like, there's a reason why I'm alive. There's a reason why I'm currently surviving. Like, what does this mean? And so that really fucked with me because I was like, there's a reason why I'm still here. Like, why am I still here? Why do these things keep happening to me? Yet I'm surviving. I don't understand. Um, And so that's kind of been really, like I said, top of mind as of recently, because I see like what happens to, um, you know, Asian folks in the media. I know what happens outside of media. Um, uh, 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 What happens outside the media, excuse me. And it's like, why why am I so lucky comparable to these people? And I just like, don't understand. And so that kind of messes with me sometimes. So, you know, not that far after I said, I I can't be here anymore. Um, Too much pain, too much trauma. Um, I always knew I wanted to leave anyway. So shortly after that, I did leave. And, you know, the place I live now has always been like my safe haven. Um, But as of recently, Um, You know, there has been an increase in sexual verbal assault on the streets when I go on walks. I don't really go on walks outside anymore Um, because of it. um, I I just don't want to deal with the trauma. And, you know, Atlanta, now the trauma of this, it's triggering. And it's triggering to me because it makes me think of the trauma that I've had at at the hands of white people my entire life. Um, it, It just brings up all this stuff. And you know, as as an adult person in their 30s, I'm quote unquote, over it in the sense of I can go on with my life and function normally. But I mourn like the experience because it's not easy. And I mourn the experience of like, it happened to me, it's happening to other people. And um a lot of times when we're in these situations, you don't really think that these kind of things happen to people that are so close to us. And a lot of the reason with Asian American women or Asian women or AAPI people or AAPI women specifically is because we're constantly told not to, um, as we know. And so I, I, a huge part of what I'm doing now with you is, you know, a part of my self care process, because um, I understand before I even go into that. Here's another thing that I just kind of want to say and make sure that I'm very explicit about. I'm going through a grieving process right now, essentially, which I think is very normal. And I'm very lucky and privileged that I can afford therapy that I have an amazing support system of people around me that are emotionally available, that I can talk, I feel like I can talk to about this and that I'm at a point of strength through my 
my history and therapeutic journey to where I can now feel comfortable openly talking about this. And here's the other thing. I am a biracial person. I am half Japanese, half Mexican. And although there has been fetishization due to that, I understand that I have privilege not only being half, half Japanese um, and not even like 100% Asian, but as an Asian person, my proximity to whiteness gives me a certain level of privilege, even, like, even though I understand I'm a part, you know, the model minority myth and white supremacy is there to hurt me. I understand that my proximity to whiteness does also give me privilege, but I was using that as a crutch for years and I said this to you on the live the other day, it wasn't until two years ago that I truly understood that racism even applied to me. And it's really wild for me to say that, where I was like, you can't be racist against Asian people. It's not possible because we're sold on this. Well, you're so light skinned. You're so close to white. You're basically a white person. So I was like, I'm a white person. Like I'm not, you know, I'm not a person of color, blah, blah, blah. And the other day too, I was talking to someone and they called me brown and I remember like looking at them and being like, what? And they're like, yeah, like you're, you're, you're Mexican, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're brown. And I remember being like, I have never even thought of myself in that way. And, you know, a part of that too is because people see me as an Asian person as well. And because of the way I was raised, even within my childhood, my Mexican identity has been completely erased from my life in pretty almost every aspect of the way. And it's because of how white people saw me. They saw me as Asian. And so now in my 30s, I'm just like, oh, my God, am I a brown person? Like, I am Mexican. Da 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 da. And like, so now I'm having to reconcile with like all this shit. And it's very, very weird. And Right now, my my grieving process, not only due to what's happening to AAI people, but it's also a grieving process. And it's like a guilt. It's almost guilt that, you know, I have no identity and I haven't made much of an effort to learn about my Mexican identity. I, and I know it's not like my fault, but we live in a world where the government doesn't help us. We live in a world where we're, we're thrown out and it's, you got to figure it out on your own. We're not helping you. So the only thing I can control is how I move forward. And so realizing that I am in this limbo, like of identity of how I identify myself and I'm like figuring it out and how racism applies to me. Like I realized I still feel very alone and like I don't fit in anywhere. And so now I'm having to reconcile that in addition to all this other stuff that I have to reconcile with that's happened in my past that happens because I'm an Asian person. So right now, it, it, like I said, I'm going through like a grieving period because it's so complex and there's like all these things happening. And I'm just like, I don't know who I am when it comes to like my identity. And I thought I already had this figured out and I feel like I am figuring it out, but it was just really interesting to me, um, you know, thinking about this recently because I feel like I'm constantly stuck in this limbo place as a biracial person. And I know other biracial people feel that way because I have, I have plenty of biracial friends that appear more toward one Asian or one, excuse me, one racial identity than the other. And they also have shared this with me too. And so that's just to say it goes beyond my 
you know, my Japanese identity. It's also has to do with me being biracial. I understand my privilege, but I was using my privilege as a crutch to say that my experiences don't matter for so long. And so I'm here today to be like, I'm not doing that anymore, essentially. Um, I mean, yeah, that's, you know, mm-hmm. outside of all of that depressing stuff I just talked about, um, something that I'm really proud of throughout this grieving process that I've also been doing, which is something Kerwin and I talk about so much is self-care and what that means to us and Mm self-care you know is something that goes beyond taking like a bath eating comfort food it's like what are you doing to invest in yourself and what are you doing to figure out who you are and to be the and and to be who you are authentically at all times even though we're in this system where that's not really celebrated in any way and so you know I I feel like something that's been helping me recently and and I think self-care is it's it's hard for people and so I'm going to share just like a little bit of what I do because it could help other people and um, it's something that I never thought I would be doing, to be completely honest, but meditation is something I've been recently doing. I use an app called Shine, and um, the co-founder mm-hmm. is a half-Japanese woman. And so uh, Shine is an amazing app. I would highly recommend it. And um, they have a lot of content for people of color um, and actually content for the AAPI community as well. Um, but their app is like basically like for women by women. And, um, and I say women as is, is inclusive of all identities. So I just like want to be clear there. I don't see it in like a cis way. And um, it's also like by people of color and essentially for people of color. So, you know, it, it's an app that, you know, there's a person of color on the other side saying something and you know that it's for you and it's catered like for us. And I think that's really important. And Kerwin, I know you have used one. Um, I don't remember the name of it. Yes. Oh, yeah. So the app I use is called Liberate. Um, and that I don't know. I I think the 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 founder is. OK, yeah. I'm just going to they're BIPOC. I don't know. They're BIPOC. But yeah, I really enjoy um, Liberate. And also I, I paid for Liberate for a couple months. And I was like, <laughs> oh, yeah, this is something that we're going to we're going to yeah, keep like, doing. It's definitely. Yeah, I was like, oh, yeah, because it's it's like they're talking. It's like there's a black, you know, I mean, there's BIPOC people, yes. but especially the ones that resonate with me are the black women on there and like their meditations. And there's also like a sleepy meditation on there when I'm having trouble sleeping because, you know, it's it's the pandemic. I was having trouble sleeping. My sleeping schedule is off that really like helped me it's just like hearing their voice hearing somebody that sounds like me and is able to like calm me down and yeah. be like it's gonna be okay i'm like yes, yeah would please. highly recommend so, yeah. both check out shine um, yeah check it, it, out it's like it's catered for us and it's a really wonderful feeling to be like oh i identify with the person on the other end but i also know you know it's made for me so i really like that part and something else that's been helping me a lot is, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I've been a writer my whole life, but through my traumatic experiences, um, I let go of a lot of things that I loved doing. Um, there was multiple things that through traumatic experiences, I just really didn't feel like I could do things anymore. And, um, 
you know, I just, I feel like I have a very unique point of view to express, not only because of who I am as a person, my racial identity, but because of my experiences. And so something that's actually been helping me really recently is writing and storytelling. And I'm the kind of person that my entire life, I always loved writing stories. Um, and I always wished there was content like that out there, like like to consume and like the media on TV and movies. And it's still not out there. Like, yes, we obviously, you know, especially with Asian folks, you know, we have Crazy Rich Asians, we have Mirari, we have Parasite. Um, we have these now like Oscar um, we have Oscar recognition for um, mostly Asian casts and work and like American work and stuff like that. But, and I think that's absolutely beautiful. Like I just saw Minari recently and I just, I just cried. It's a, it's a beautiful movie. Um, highly recommend everyone seeing it. And Parasite, I think is probably one of the best movies that's ever been made to be completely honest, but uh, it's so good. It's so good. But agreed. <laughs> as of recently, I was like this content, that I know I want to see is still missing. And I'm telling these stories and have been telling these stories for mm -hmm. years. Like, why isn't it out there? And, you know, as a Japanese person, I'm not seeing a lot of Japanese content out there either. And like Japanese American content. So very recently I've been kind of like toying with the idea of like, should I like be more artistic in the sense of actually having my content be out for public consumption? Like I have, in, in my past and <clears throat> excuse me, currently I've had people that I knew in the industry that have been like, you have such a unique point of view and you should invest in yourself and try to become like a screenwriter or like a filmmaker. Cause that's something like, they're like, you're so creative. You're so good at what you do. Why aren't you doing this? And I've just been like, I don't want to be in the industry. I have like no interest. And I still feel that way. And so right now I'm kind of going through like a moment where I'm like, how do I invest in myself? And like, do I want to tell these stories? And do I want them to be publicly consumed? Yeah, I think so. So how do I start? And so for me, that's an act of self care. It's me being like, mm -hmm. why do I li why am I constantly limiting myself? What can I do to make sure I stop limiting myself? Stop allowing white supremacy to control me. And again, how do I invest in myself so I have the future I want to have and I exist the way I want to exist? And that's still an unanswered question. I still don't know what I want to do with this. But I think that part of self-care is really important is the investment in yourself. It's outside of therapy too, you know? Like I said, it's like outside of therapy. I also pay for, uh, pay for shine. So it's monetary, monetary investment in therapy, in in meditation and meditative practices it's an investment of money in potentially taking like a class or something but it's also an investment of time and it's an investment of prioritization and like i know that whenever i'm in a future relationship um with somebody it's going to be me being like, I prioritize myself because if I'm not okay, this will not be okay. And if I don't believe in myself, invest in myself and take care of myself, I'm not going to be able to break the cycle of these toxic relationships. It's just not going to happen. And so that's the work I've really been doing over like the past year. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, all of this to say is, 
I'm, I'm here to just tell my story in, in very like detailed direct terms. Again, I wasn't able to really go through everything. Um, and, and I think that's okay. Like, I don't, you know, I, I, I do not have the emotional energy to go through everything. Um, but I just, I know there are people that are going to listen to this that can relate to what I'm saying. And I know there's people that are going to listen to this that have their own secrets to hide and, or like feel like they're harboring the secret. And I'm not here to say you should speak out and you should say something because I think that's easier said and done. But all I'm here to really say is like, here's what's happened to me. Here's mm -hmm. my truth. And someone is here that can relate to you and you're not by yourself. And I think what really kept me from moving forward was this sense of loneliness and the sense of no identity and that no one will understand what I'm saying, but that's not true. Um, and so all I can hope is that somebody, you know, one person is like, oh my gosh, like I've been through that similar experience. Oh, like there's someone out there that understands what I'm saying and it gives them some sort of relief to some capacity. Um, that's all I can hope for. I obviously also did this for myself to release this into the universe and, to just be like, okay, mm -hmm. I'm finally being honest. I'm, you know, in my 30s, finally being open about stuff that's happened to me. But it's also for other people. And I and I and I I don't want to set this precedent any longer of not only POC or Asian women, POC uh, women, and all gender identities, to be quite honest, but also like this cultural, you know, uh, this cultural idea that we shouldn't be sharing these these like negative things that happened to us i think it's incredibly harmful so that's that's why i've done what i've done yeah How um i'm snotting this, a lot um i've been having to wipe my nose constantly throughout this yeah. conversation um i did not cry as much as i thought i was going to cry so i'm actually quite proud of myself but um I feel I feel emotionally exhausted, but an immense amount of relief. And like I and I'm glad I do, but I am Yay. emotionally exhausted, but I do feel a lot of relief and I'm glad I'm doing this. I'm still incredibly scared um, of this being out there for public consumption, but I need to do this and I want to do this. So that's why I'm I'm doing this. So. Okay. Well, I appreciate you going through this. I know it was not yeah. an easy thing to do whatsoever. Um, and I just want to just quickly say, Thank you. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad that, you know, I'm glad that you, you've really been here for me for this entire pandemic, honestly. And it's, I can't really imagine. Yeah. Same. Like this entire time. Same. Without you, same. So. Um, yeah. Like Kerwin has become one of my best friends. Waterworks. Okay. Kerwin has become one of my best friends, like <laughs> in existence. And um, I'm really, really happy to have met you. Um, and, you know, I, I really believe in you and um, believe that you can be anyone that you want to be. And I also am very much um 
influenced and look up to you in regards to like how you really invest in yourself and take care of yourself and believe in yourself too and so that rubs off on me and also makes me like want to be um want to believe in myself and be better and so I appreciate you in that way too because I feel like I look up to you a lot in that way so I just appreciate you as a fellow person that like exists in society but especially as like one of my best friends I like love you so much I'm really happy that I did this with you because I feel like this is a safe space and I trust you so much so I really appreciate you even being open to this conversation course well I love you too um do you have any last words um I'm gonna take a shot of soju after this oh oh yeah oh my god okay you know what after this let's get off the call I was like we'll get off we'll get off um we'll get off uh uh, the the app and we're gonna we're gonna drink some Asian beverages together I think that's a really good idea because I'm like I'm like, listen, I don't drink very often anymore, but I need a shot. I'm just like, oh my God, I need something after this. Cause yeah, very exhausting. But yeah, I'm glad to celebrate with you after um celebrate with you after this with a drink. <laughs> so I'm really excited about that. All right, girl. <laughs> well, let's end this because I'm trying to get drunk. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but <laughs> I am ready for this drink though. But I do wanna. I want to thank you so much. Uh, I can't, I'm going to keep saying thank you. I keep saying thank you. Oh my God. I'm going to say thank you for the billionth time today. Thank you so much for sharing your experience with us. Um, I know it was not easy to do, um, but I'm glad that I could be here for you. I'm glad that I could listen. um, And I hope that everyone else, you know, learned something from this conversation. You took something away from this conversation. Yeah. Um, Um, I, I, I really appreciate the people that are like invested in you and your listeners. And I really hope they learn something from this too. And they take something away from this. Um, And that's all I can hope for. So thanks for everyone for listening too. Yes. Okay. All right. Okay. See you later. Bye.